It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Before we start this episode, we are excited to announce we are launching this podcast on video as well. For this episode, we'll be launching this feed on video and audio. So on this feed, you're going to have, a for this episode, an audio feed and a video feed. We'll only keep the video on this feed for this episode, uh, just to inform everyone. So, But if you like the video approach, we will continue it on the YouTube channel for Message to Kings. So search for Brett Heaston, uh, and you should find the channel. Or search via the current title on YouTube, Message to Kings, Episode 272, Our Great Salvation, John 316. It's a crazy long title, but hopefully that'll work for you. Once you find it, make sure to subscribe to future, for future videos on YouTube, like, comment, or share the video. All right, without further ado, our regularly scheduled program. Episode 272, Our Great Salvation. After the wedding at Canaan, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate his first Passover of his ministry. It's filled with signs and wonders and a message spoken to a high-ranking, prestigious Pharisee named Nicodemus, which their conversation actually defines Jesus' ministry, his assignment, our salvation, and the working of the Spirit in the New Testament age. To start, there's some debate from Bible scholars who who say, you know, this event may have occurred later in Jesus' ministry, and it's actually like extra detail uh, with greater detail that some of the other Gospels don't carry. This theory assumes John wrote his Gospel account out of chronological order. And I'll lean towards this, this, I lean towards this not happening. And this event occurs right here, right now, before his Galilean ministry. This means there was two clearings of the temple of money changers. And my reason for this is leaning in that John's account starts earlier than the others. He was one of the first apostles. He was one of the first. So he has, you know, this greater details. And this is why this account has it and the others don't, because John was one of the first apostles. In addition, we find John seems to have a connection in Jerusalem, for he writes a lot from the perspective of Jerusalem. You know, some historians, some people point that he he was actually in relation to the high priest. Um, This is, you know, this could even be confirmed later by John being the only apostle who was there at Jesus' you know, death. Well, John records most about Jerusalem, and it speaks to this visit to Jerusalem and Jesus' first Passover in Jerusalem during his ministry. He was most likely an eyewitness to these scenes, and John, I, he was there. He, he was complete and total witness to all of this. And a few of the other disciples are in a company, and we just don't know who exactly. And to be honest, all of the disciples should have actually been there because it was required as a Jew to be in Jerusalem at Passover. Some say Jerusalem floods to 500,000 to a million people during the Passover celebration, which is a crazy amount of people in a little place. For context, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. The city was prepped and built like a city on a hill. Its golden temple was a centerpiece of the city, surrounded by Solomon's colonnade and a massive outer courtyard. One now 
filled with money chargers, many money changers, and stalls for sacrifices to be purchased by for those in the coming celebration. Basically, the outer court was a marketplace. Perhaps it was a temporary market for the celebration. Regardless, Jesus was furious. And what he saw was a temple edifice built for man, for man's gawking impressment, and a market set up to capitalize on the drawing of men, run by the deceit of men. And in the spirit, he saw religion controlled by man and a corruption of the temple courts. Jesus was compassionate to the hurting, rewarding to the humble. He was carrying the people's burdens. But he wasn't so to the corrupt religious class and the political power brokers of the day. No, he wasn't kind to religious and political spirits. That wasn't his thing. John 2, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. That's the thing. So we've got to remember, Jesus was already performing miracles. He was performing signs. John uses the word signs here. And, and he's pointing to the Father. He's constantly pointing to the Father. The, the book of John is all about Jesus pointing to the Father. It says he made a whip of cords. And I try to picture this scene. And the outer area here is the size of at least a football field. And he must have made a ruckus, a major scene. The fear of the Lord must have gone with them. For we hear a few complaints from the ruling class here. They do say, by what authority do you, you know, question these things and do these things? And his action must have cost people thousands. And after this, he taught and conducted signs per the Apostle John. And I love this mention of signs because he was already doing signs. This doesn't say what these signs were at this time. John later would say of Jesus, there were so many deeds of Jesus. I suppose all the books and all the world cannot contain them. Now a Pharisee, not a normal one. Now, this guy is a teacher and one could actually call him a seeker for he was honestly searching for truth. He goes to see Jesus at night. Night is when you would visit Jesus if you didn't want to be seen by others. And there's a, something else I caught earlier was that um, he, this teacher, whose name is Nicodemus, he will actually say, we know you were sent from God. So he's implying there's more than just him. And he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. 
History even points to a wealthy historical figure with this name. He's a key figure in this time, and Jesus himself would call him Israel's teacher. He was wealthy and was a sincerely humble figure in history, and his faith journey can be a picture of our own. John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So you've got to put yourself in this seat here. Like Nicodemus is a teacher of the scriptures, and Jesus just blows him away with the message of salvation. Cut to the chase, no messing around, Jesus. The metaphor here is to be born again. To be clear, Jesus is meaning to be born again in the spirit, not in the, not in the physical, in the spirit. To go from darkness to light. The message here is fantastic and spoken with clarity, yet it's measured to connect with Nicodemus with physical terms paralleling the spirit. John 3, 4. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born again. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus says. And do not understand these things? I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, yet you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. All right. John 3.16 is a summation of Jesus' assignment, the purpose of the cross, and the most spoken of Christian verse in world history. It's no wonder one sees them on posters, on advertisements, on game day signs, even on Tim Tebow's face. In fact, in the National Football Championship, Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 on his face under his eyes. It's typical for players to put black paint under their eyes to assist with it. The result was 94 million people Googled John 3.16 that day. I can't imagine how many got saved as a result of this one action. Now we can't miss this. Jesus' own words. In John 3.17 it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Greek word here is sozo. The Greek word sozo has substantial meaning compared to our understanding of the, even the English word of salvation. When we say salvation, we understand this is a heart change from darkness to light, but the Greek means way more. 
I mean, seriously. It compares to the fullness of our salvation. So, so it means saved, healed, and delivered. It implies we, we aren't weak. It implies we aren't weak, powerless Christians walking in darkness and sin and struggling from day to day. No, this means Jesus comes to set us free from everything that plagues you internally, heals you from any infirmity, and turns your heart from darkness to light. That's why Jesus came to make you more than a conqueror, to be a powerful and prayerful believer. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned, already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because of their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus' reference here is Moses and the bronze snake. In Numbers 21, at least in the lifting up part. Serpents were striking the camp of Israel and the people were dying. Well, Jerusalem's the same. Serpents were all over Jerusalem at the moment, spiritually, slithering out of Herod's palace, Pilate's fortifications, and the Sanhedrin itself. The snakes are all over. Yet here is Jesus not speaking of these snakes. No, he's speaking of a cursed thing being lifted up on high that everyone must look up to. He's speaking to the future when all must look up to a cross, up to a cross to be saved. We did the Moses episode of this scene long ago. The reference is when the people were cursed for cursing God and deadly snakes were killing the people. Moses was told to make a wretched thing, a statue of a bronze snake around a pole Look it up. It looks quite similar to the pharmacy symbols today. All those who looked up and upon the curse would be saved. In this case, healed and saved from death. Now Jesus is saying all should look up to the one who will be lifted up on high and they will be saved. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus clearly knew he was born to die on the cross. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows in three years he'll be freely giving up his own life as a sacrifice for all to believe. He even tells it in pretty clear terms right here. The thing about Jesus' teaching is, like any teaching with the breathing of the Holy Spirit upon it, it's got layers and layers and layers on it. Just like these verses. Read John 3 every month for the next two years. I wouldn't be surprised if you find more meanings and references that you never, ever expected. The thing is about this encounter with Nicodemus is what happens when one wholehearted individual goes toward Jesus. He's a seeker. He's hungry. Jesus has the answer to every question. It won't be what you think, but he desires for all to come to him to know the knowledge of him. Seek him like Nicodemus. See what happens. Pick a night in your bedroom or in your living room or go on a walk. Seek him like Nicodemus and he will reveal himself. He will. It's a promise. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus goes on to the Jordan after this and he ministers near John the Baptist. 
The Apostle John seals the third chapter of John with greater power. John the Baptist knows Jesus and his assignment, clear as day. He probably doesn't realize he's going to die on a cross, but he does call him the Lamb of God. And I love his humility of John the Baptist. He says, I'm going to go lower so that he may go higher. And Jesus is Jesus hires the cross, right? But so John 3, 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you and on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The people who attend the bridegroom wait and listen for him. And they're full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is not complete. He must become greater, so I must become less. John the Baptist was one of the most popular figures in the nation at this time. But he knew his assignment. He was to draw people to Jesus. Oh, that the most famous ministers in America would recognize these words. That Jesus must become greater, that they may become less. Tim Tebow did. He was one of the most famous people in the world for a season. What did he do with it? He pointed people to John 3.16. He must become greater so I can become less. And in typical John the Baptist fashion, John lays it down black and white for us to see. John 3.31 The one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it is certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son, he's placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. It's so black and white for John the Baptist. On a personal note, the more I read through the Gospels this time, I'm utterly amazed how clear and brazen and obvious the assignment of Jesus was to him. John the Baptist clearly knows Jesus is the Son of God. His mom does as well. His identity is not in question, but his future death on the cross is fuzzy to me. It's obvious to us looking back, but nobody knew that he was going to allow them to make him the sacrifice. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God, but I don't think he realized what he truly meant. The cross is Jesus' secret assignment written in the prophecies and even spoken by himself, where Jesus will fulfill the law and overthrow the devil's plans and fulfill the entirety of the Old Testament law. Let's end this episode of Message of Kings with the progression of the believer, which Nicodemus speaks to. Nicodemus is mentioned here three times. He's mentioned three times in the Gospels. Here in this scene, his first mention was of an innocent, honest 
seeker. He came to Jesus at night. He chose the night season so that no one would see him or hear him. He wanted the safety of discretion. This is sincere, heartfelt, and wise in an intolerant world. From this moment, he most likely came to the knowledge of Jesus at many levels, and he became a sincere believer over the course of the next year or so. He followed him from afar, probably sent people to take notes of his messages and relay miracles they have seen and take them back to him. His second reference was more public, though. He wasn't a bold, outspoken proponent of Jesus, but in John 7, when the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin were finding excuses to do away with Jesus, Nicodemus declares that anyone that is being judged must have a legal hearing before they can be condemned. They sneered at him and said, Have you become a believer of him? Nicodemus doesn't answer, but he defends Jesus, at least indirectly, pleading basic justice. He defended Jesus as anyone should after becoming a true believer. And this isn't expected from a seeker, but a mature believer should stand their guns, defend what is right, and fight the good fight. Do notice how Nicodemus didn't play all of his cards, nor did he respond to all their sneers. He would give it all later. He went from a seeker to a public believer. But later, when Jesus is tried before the Sanhedrin at the Passover of his death, we assume Nicodemus wasn't there because the trial was illegal and at night, or he was one of those who protested, but we don't know for sure. But we do know his third mention is when he arrives with Joseph of Arimathea, an incredibly rich merchant, some say from the tin mining trade as far away as England. They both end up at Pilate's side asking for the body of Jesus from John 19.39. His third appearance is as a staunch believer who is willing to lose everything for his faith. Joseph and Nicodemus are the ones who take the body of Christ down from the cross itself, the body of Christ. He's placed in, they place Jesus' body in Joseph of Arimathea's personal tomb, and Nicodemus and Joseph personally wash the body of Jesus, treat his body, wrap his body, and they apply costly perfumes and take care of him and his normal burial procedure. But that's the three steps of a believer. Seekers pursue God in righteous hunger to desire the truth. The second stage is a mature believer with the public confession and the action for Jesus, whether it's evangelism or acts of Jesus or even acts of justice. And this is where it become the hands and feet of Jesus once you're a mature believer. Nicodemus later takes a stand and, and he's ridiculed. But the third step is willingness to lose it all. It's true faith. It's the true loss of self to, to live to Christ, to die is gain. Whether you're in the process of Christian maturity, wherever you are in the process of Christian maturity, stay faithful to the calling. If you're a seeker, there's a hunger stage. There's an amazement stage. It's all new, exciting, it's powerful. The hardest steps for you will be the ones where you have to do away with the things of the world that hinder you. I remember when I figuratively threw out my old music. Um, some friends had to go um, and sin had to be dealt with. Do those things, and God will honor every decision. In the maturity phase, I found my faith had to be shared. It couldn't just be my faith alone. Others around me had to know, experience, and understand this love of Jesus. The final phase of a believer is true surrender. True surrender, everything. 
a willingness to lose it all, to give it all up to follow Christ no matter what anyone thinks or what they say or how they treat you. Wherever you are in the process, God is with you and he loves you right where you're at. And to the seekers out there, this is a, a message for you most of all because of this scene here. And like I said earlier, Jesus desires for all to come to the knowledge of him. Seek him like Nicodemus and see what happens. Pick a night in your bedroom or your living room or go on a walk. Seek him like Nicodemus and he will reveal himself to you. It's a promise. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find and knock and the door will be opened to you. The question that Nicodemus was truly after was, who are you, Jesus? He said, we know you're a teacher come from God, but the sole reason he came to Jesus was to know who you are, Jesus. Get alone, just like Nicodemus, and ask who you are, Jesus, and see what happens. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm going to say that this episode is sponsored by our, fam our family YouTube channel, HFA. We'll put a post in the description, um, and it's Houston Family Adventures. So if you're ever on a uh, want to see what the Houston family's up to and you want to follow us on our travels, uh, if you want to see how a Christian homeschool family um, celebrates God's creation out there in the wilderness, um, check it out on YouTube, Houston Family Adventures. And as always, um, thanks for checking out. Thanks for listening or watching now. Um, message to Kings. And if you got any questions or comments, email us at message to Kings at gmail.com.